Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. I'm Molly. Molly, wouldn't you say that... The United States of America, this land in which we live, mm-hmm. uh, is pretty progressive in terms of women's rights. Uh, most fairly, of the time. Fairly. Probably compared to other countries. We have yes. a, a pretty rich history of, you know, the suffrage movement, second wave feminism, third wave feminism, et cetera, et cetera. Stuff mom never told you. Stuff mom, Molly and Kristen. <laughs> um, we're writing a new chapter right now. But there's one one area that the U.S. really lags behind a lot of other countries that really we would not think of as very um, progressive uh, with, in terms of gender equality. Lay it on me. Political representation. Very true. Very true. Now, you might not think so, given what's been going on in the past few months with the passage of health care reform, because Nancy Pelosi is getting all these kudos as, you know, the one who gathered all that consensus. But, you know, we've got a handful of women in political office um, or who have been given political appointments. Yeah. And we're in the 111th Congress. And they actually broke the record uh, for the most female representation in Congress, taking it from a whopping 16% to 17%. Wow. Pretty small proportion, considering that you know the population is roughly half female. And there are many who would make the argument, Kristen, that if we really wanted to have a representative government that's going to take into account all citizens' perspectives, needs, desires... Etc. You need to have that female point of view. Mm-hmm. Now, one place, Molly, that this has been happening is India. Mm-hmm. In early March, the upper house of India's parliament passed a bill that to amend the constitution to have one third of seats in India's 
national and state legislatures reserved for women. Mm-hmm. No matter what, a third of the parliamentary seats got to be filled by women. All right. And this seems like, hey, off, off the cuff, this is great news, right? India, huge population. Going to be, you know, ruled by, partially ruled by women now more. Well, it's been very controversial in India because there's been a lot of discussion about who actually benefits. You know, we've talked about India before, how it's very heavily still influenced by that caste system. Mm -hmm. So some people are saying that this is, you know, only good for certain classes, um, certain religions, that the women who are going to get put into office are essentially just going to be puppets for other political parties. But this idea of putting a quota into place to uh, expand the female representation of a government or a political party is actually very widespread. But Molly, what are we really referring to when we're talking about this quota? Obviously, it's a requirement um, that a certain number of women fill government seats. But there are two main distinctions between uh, quotas. There is the legal quota in which a country's constitution is actually amended to require a certain percentage of women representatives, or they will just have a, a law enacted. And then you also have something called political party quotas, which there's no there's no legal recourse at all, but it's when political parties take it upon themselves. For instance, if the Democratic Party decides that they want more women um, in their ranks, they might enact a party quota for, what, like 25% of their candidates to be women. Mm-hmm. So now why would you want to do this? All over the world, I think it's, you know, not news to anyone that women have always been sort of the second sex, to borrow a popular phrase. Mm -hmm. Um, And in order to fully accomplish equality, some would argue that you've got to put them in positions of power. Because how can you really affect change if you have no power to influence laws at the very creation of them? So obviously, since women make up half the population, if we're also not in government and don't have a say with what's going on, that means that our needs, specific needs, um, which are you know, usually characterized by um, child care and family issues, um, equal opportunity and employment and uh, reproductive health, reproductive health. Sexual health and safety, all of that. Equal pay? Equal pay. Yes, Molly. All of these wonderful things are not necessarily being attended to um, in government. So that's the major pro that people see with enacting these quotas is um, bringing, you know, more of um, uh, a balance, I guess, into the type of legislation that's being passed. And it's, you know, some will argue that these women do need some sort of compensation for barriers that have been put into their place that right now they don't have the same qualifications as men. Perhaps, you know, our daughters will grow up and see more women in political politics and they wouldn't need, you know, to hop a barrier to get there. But right now have women had the same political training as men had. Mm -hmm. Now it's very easy to flip this around and say, this totally goes against what we believe in as a democracy because Our government is built on the fact that we elect people based on their qualifications. And if we don't like what they do, we we throw them out. So how in the world is it a good idea, Kristen, to put women into seats and then just say, well, no matter if every woman who does a crappy job in this position, you know, screws everything up, we've still got to keep her in this. We still have to keep a woman in this chair. Right. And I think that that's the major question that we have to ask ourselves when evaluating whether or not female quotas are a good thing, because I think that um, I don't know about you, Molly, but going into this topic, my knee jerk answer was sure. 
Of course it is. It's a good idea or it's undemocratic? That it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, like, is that also at the same time, not only dismantling our ideas of equal opportunity and democracy, but also almost categorizing women once again into this, like, kind of separate, special little corner that they need to hang out in and, you know, work on their, like, childcare, et cetera, types of issues, rather than allowing the, us to, you know, have to jump in the fray and get in there right beside, um, elbow our way in, you know, alongside the men. Right. You'd always have to wonder if you were in power just because you're a woman or if you really had something, I think, to contribute to the government. Now, one other pro I'll mention that we kind of skipped over is that in this country, and we're going to keep comparing, I guess, to the United States, but, you know, again, we don't have any sort of quota system in the United States in political government. This is more, you know, largely in the developing world, places like Latin America, uh, Africa. Uh, but anyway, it's also good, I think, the one thing I did like about it is that if you have a quota, of, you know, a third of your seats, let's say, are dedicated to women in government. Right, and 30%, just to note, is is usually the average quota. In fact, we can only find one example where there's a 50-50 mandate, which some people say benefits guys as well as women. But I digress. The one thing I wanted to say that was cool about having a quota as opposed to just, you know, grooming certain women for a position is that there's no token female which I do think is something that still, you know, perhaps dogs, uh, women in the United States. Mm-hmm. They're set apart. They're the token female. I think that's very stressful. You think about all the pressure that was put on Hillary Clinton in the last presidential election to be, you know, this, you know, banner carrier for women. And isn't it easier for women to actually gain footholds in government when they don't have to be the representative of their entire gender? Well, sure. And I think that you could say that on the flip side as well for um, for Sarah Palin. Mm-hmm. Obviously, completely different politics. But I think for that segment of women who supported her, you know, a lot of it was um, a lot of it came from the fact that she was, you know, a working a working mother. Mm-hmm. But I think more on that, more on that later. I think one, uh, one thing we have to keep in mind too when we're thinking about this issue of political quotas in the states is that, um, they're going to operate a lot differently and have a much different effect, I think, in more of the developing world and in, um, in countries where women, um, still are far more disenfranchised than they are in the U.S. For instance, quotas have been enforced in a growing number of Asian countries and to the point that it's been referred to as, as something called quota fever. <laughs> um, and this includes countries like India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. But the thing is, they've had, uh, they've had mixed results because a lot of times these might be illiterate women coming from smaller villages who are just being tapped because they have to be tapped and are then simply used as pawns by the male leaders of political parties. They're not actually allowed to do um, anything really worthwhile. And this is also a complaint um, that um, some women in the Iraqi government have expressed because Iraq also has a quota. And uh, but a lot of these women are complaining because they're saying they're being kind of pushed off to the softer ministries. They're not really allowed to get in there and work alongside men. But that also has to do with Islamic tradition that generally segregates men from women as well. So that divide gets back to what you're discussing when you explained the difference between uh, the political quota and the legal quota. Mm-hmm. It seems that women who are tapped to be part of just a political party slate 
are at a huge disadvantage just because they do have to, you know, keep in stride with a party leader. And that uh, article you mentioned about the Iraq women, some of them have formed their own party to try and, you know, show to the people that they aren't under the thumb of some minister who's telling them what to say. But, you know, in that same article, another Iraq woman raised the point that politics and governance is all about ideas, theories, what's best for the entire people. And she didn't know if a gender approach would be the best way to deal with that. And a lot of times uh, the women who are being selected to fill these reserved seats um, are going to kind of just naturally be extensions of powerful men in government, especially in a lot of Latin American and South American countries, which we have learned from two articles by Alexander Starr. The first one uh, was in Slate in 2006, and then there was one um, published actually a, a week ago in Foreign Policy. And she points out that in a lot of the Latin American, a lot of Latin American countries, these women will be, will be tabbed because they are the daughters or wives of pres- presidents or other um, powerful men in government. Which is something that Hillary Clinton had to shake the entire campaign. Sure. So we've got women that, as you mentioned, Kristen, are essentially just tabbed because they know someone. Mm-hmm. And from the outside, it might look like these statistics of female participation in the government are really, you know, a, a positive development. You know, you see more women involved from the outside. That seems like it can only be good for the country. But then you've got to start looking at what they actually do when they're in power. And that's where things have started to break down because we don't see the kind of change that we might expect from a female leader. Now, that's got a lot of, you know, asterisks we got to say. Right. I mean, it's like, <laughs> what do you consider the, you know, proper policy path for a female leader. Right. And should we expect a certain set of policies? Exactly. But, you know, a lot of these women essentially just continue to follow the previous government. They're they're not rocking the boat in ways that you might expect them to if there was a need for a political quota, if that makes sense. I mean, obviously, you're saying if we if we need a quota, there's something wrong with, you know, not getting the female voice heard. But then once these women are in those positions, what exactly are they trying to say about the female experience within that country? Right. I think that one example we could look at would have been um, Christina Kirshner, who uh, won the presidency in Argentina in 2007. Incidentally, her husband held office right before then. Um, and even though, you know, she held the highest seat as a female first, you know, female, uh, female president, she still didn't push for, um, for issues like equal pay. She still kind of held on to her husband's more conservative, um, more conservative party lines. Uh, but then you do have examples of women who are, uh, coming together more as a unit, not necessarily just individual women in government, but women who are really using their, I guess, block voting power to, Enact positive change. Um, Star points out in her article in Foreign Policy that um, after a quota law in Rwanda mandated that women had to take at least 30 percent of the seats in parliament, those female legislators passed through laws defining rape and protecting victims of sexual abuse. That's huge. It's huge. But then you have to wonder, I mean, is it something that uh, a, a man is going to respect or is it considered, you know, the quote unquote women's law? And a lot of scholars have tried to look at whether quotas actually, you know, affect a man's point of view on whether a woman can lead. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in our own country, I think that it's not difficult to find a, a, a fellow who might believe that a woman couldn't be president because she has a period on a monthly basis. 
Sure, that those kind of jokes were lobbed all the time with uh, with Clinton and Palin. Right. So if a guy in, let's say, India, for example, then sees a woman who is leading effectively, does that change his mind about whether a woman can lead, even if she is inherently different than a man? Or does it only make him react negatively towards anything she tries to do? Yeah, I would think that um, it could have definitely a polarizing effect. And um, the, the researchers who are trying to, to answer that question um, also point out that in a lot of these countries that are instituting what we would call fast track quotas, where they immediately pass a law, you know, get the quota on the books, especially in a lot of these um, Latin American countries. I think there are like 12 or 15 now that have the quotas. A lot of the governments use those quotas not so much for internal change, but rather to polish their international image mm-hmm. because they know that it's a good thing to show themselves as being gender friendly, um, but they're uh, but they're not really giving the, supporting the women and giving them enough opportunity uh, or really interested in um you know, and I guess instituting uh, more gen- gender-friendly policies within the country. But I think that an interesting contrast though, that we have to talk about are these Scandinavian countries that have taken more of a slow track. None of them have laws on the books in- mandating quotas. All of their quotas have started within political parties. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of had this contagious reaction among other political parties like, once, uh, once they realize that, uh, one party is open to more female representation and another party scrambles to do the same thing. And slowly but surely, you've had this kind of organic buildup of women in government. It's taken a while. Mm-hmm. However, it's there and it seems like women are given a lot more support and might be perceived, um, not so much as women politicians, but just as politicians. Right. I mean, I think that one of the articles I read essentially, you know, kind of made a I mean, I was probably reading too much into this, but essentially that feminists aren't patient. And if they were a little bit more patient in terms of getting women representation in these governments, they would see more of what the analysts call equality of results as opposed to equality of opportunity, because equality of opportunity refers to the fact that you've got the women in the office. But then you've got to look at do you have them? Um, assuming senior leadership roles? Do you have them in office long enough to actually affect change? I mean, institutional change is slow. Mm-hmm. And if you can actually look more at what these women do once they have the power, the results, is there equality there as opposed to just how many women hold a seat? Right. But I don't think that we can completely discredit the role of quotas, especially with a lot of these um, developing countries where, yeah, you might need, you really might need to just kickstart um, more equal representation from the top down because otherwise the society isn't structured to allow it to build up from, from the bottom. Mm-hmm. But I think though, um, just from my perspective, if they were try, if they tried in the United States to pass some kind of quota law, I think that there would be just massive outrage. Oh, it would never work. No. But do we, but again, like you've got to ask yourself, do you want it to work? Do you want to get into office because you're a woman? 
Do you want to get a job because you're a woman? You certainly don't want to be denied a job because you're a woman. Mm-hmm. But would you want to assume a job because you were one? Yeah. And that's what we can't answer. But Well, and that's a question that we come back to a lot on all these podcasts. Like this keeps reminding me of the uh, of the episode that we did about um, women behind the camera, you know, mm-hmm. women directors and stuff. And, and this whole argument of whether or not, you know, we should even be calling them women filmmakers in their own special, you know, category. Or should they, you know, take the Catherine Bigelow tack and say, I'm just a director. I don't even yeah. want to be called a female director. You know, I mean, that's, and it seems completely unrelated, but I do think that that's a question, um, that we come back to a lot of like, are we really focusing on the fact that we're women doing these things? But then, you know, as a woman, sometimes it's hard to see what, um, you know, a, a bunch of white guys, old white guys, frankly, Think about what I should do with my body or my life or how they're going to compensate me for it. So, you know, it's everyone can make political change in their own way there. You know, you don't have to be in office to do it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it is interesting to to consider whether there are institutional blocks to getting a woman into office in this country. And I think I think it'll be interesting, too, to see what happens um, with India in this situation, because I think that that's a good example of where the quota might actually be disenfranchising people, i.e. the poor and the mm-hmm. lower caste, who might need that representation even more than a specific gender because it's going to be a lot of upper class, upper caste um, women who are going mm-hmm. to be tapped for these positions. And that might not actually lead to positive social change. So things to think about. Keep an eye on it. Well, there's no right or wrong answer with this one, guys. Let us know what you think. Our quota is a good idea, a bad idea. Somewhere in between, we'd love to know. Our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And with our few remaining minutes, we shall read emails that were written to that very same email address. All right, first up, we have an email from Tiffany, and she wrote about the podcast on Lady Poop, one of our favorites. She writes, I had to share a well-known celebration of poop in the military. Although not commonly discussed outside the military, there's a celebration of sorts on a special day in basic training. I was told before I left for basic training that I I would be constipated the first few weeks of training. Whether this is due to the extreme emotional and physical stress you undergo that first week or the change in diet or both is debatable, but everyone experiences this. Some women are lucky to only be backed up for a few days, but there are a few unlucky girls who can go a week or more. And on a side note, most of us skip periods. As we females start to form a camaraderie in the absence of men, we also drop most pretenses to femininity. I remember after a few days when a woman came out of the bathroom and gave a big thumbs up, everyone would cheer and give her a high five. It was the only time I saw a bunch of girls cheer for poop and act proud of it. I guess it takes pretty intense and stressful moments and a lack of men to get girls cheering for poop. Okay, well, I've got an email here from Joe. And this is a response to our podcast about sunscreen Mm -hmm. because it's getting warmer outside molly it's very warm and very sunny and uh joe actually wrote us some lyrics and a chorus and a bridge an entire song if you will to um our song title you can't kiss with sunburned lips right it was it was the most uh thorough response to our request for a song yes and he did promise that he would perform it and put it up on youtube but joe you have yet to do that not to put you on the spot joe but anyway i'm just giving you a hard time so not knowing the tune chris you really can't sing it by the way joe intended and y'all don't want me to sing it but you could probably give us a glimpse of what the lyrics to this epic song are I'll tell you what, I'll send you, I'll I'll read a verse, 
a bridge and the chorus. Okay. Okay. Just another day at the beach. You've gone every day since I don't know when. Trying to tan, looking healthy and young, because it's that time of year again. Laying on your towel, you prepare yourself. You brought your SPF 30. You spread on the places that the sun will kiss and smile and the passing guys being flirty. But there's just one place that you will miss. Don't you think it's funny that I mentioned kiss? And here's the chorus, Molly. Get ready. I wish you had a banjo or something. I did. I wish I had one. All right. Because you can't kiss with sunburned lips. Your premature agent tells me where you've been. Your lips look 50, though you're 22. Like Kristen says, protect your skin, especially between your nose and your chin. And that's all I'm going to read. Oh, it's it's the best song that mentions my name that I can think of. That was my name, Molly. But my name's in it later on. <sighs> you're not the only one mentioning the song, but truly, it's the best song that does incorporate both names, Molly and Kristen. Very true. But so thank you, Joe. If we want to make that an unofficial competition, then feel free to send us other songs with our names in them. Yeah, we'll take them. So if you have songs, thoughts, anything you'd like to share, again, it's momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And guys, big news about our blog. You may remember there is, you know, an entire backlog of podcasts where we tell you to go check out how to stuff. Guess you probably went to how to stuff and you were like, hey, this has nothing to do with your podcast. What's up with that? Guess what? Big changes afoot. We are going to have a Stuff Mom Never Told You blog. It will be on the blog page at How Stuff Works. And that is where we will bring you the written extension of this fine podcast that we co-host. Things, yes. things that we're interested in, things that strike us about gender, women, the questions you never knew you had. And also questions that you guys send us that we might not be able to podcast about, but might make for a tidy little blog post. So we are very excited about it. We hope you check it out. Stuff Mom Never Told You. Look for our smiling faces greeting you. Smiling with excitement. At our site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. 